I'm just filled with so much joy this morning. It is so good to be back with you, to be fellowshipping with you, and to be singing about the Lord's mercy, singing about our wonderful Christ. Thank you so much for making us feel so welcomed back. Thank you for all the support and all the prayer that you've given us, both when we're here and when we're away. We're truly grateful to the Lord for you, and we pray that that the Lord will continue to grow and provide for all of your needs as well. It's also a great joy to be bringing the word to you this morning. Let me pray before we go on. Lord God, please speak to us now. Speak to us through your word. Use me, God, even as your mouthpiece. Give me the ability to explain clearly and appropriately what your word says, that we might progress in sanctification and faith, just as you meant us to. Our sins are indeed many, God. Not just they were many, but they are many. We still stumble in our lives. And you are so gracious and patient with us. You do show us mercy continually. But you meant for us to progress. So please, accomplish that. Even now, God, as we hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you had to guess... What would you say is the official motto of the United States? You look around our society, you see what it values. You'd be forgiven if you thought the motto was something like, he who has the most toys wins. Or above all else, be true to yourself. Or even capitalism is the way to glory. A lot of people think that the motto of the United States is the rather cool-sounding Latin phrase, e pluribus unum which means, out of many, one. And indeed, that is, in some ways, a very appropriate motto for the United States, but it's not actually the official motto. What is the motto? In God we trust. Yes, I'm not kidding. That's the official motto of the United States, in God we trust. Adopted in 1956 by Congress, it's remained our motto ever since, and it's printed on all our currency. You pull out a dollar bill, you pull out some coins, you'll see the phrase, in God we trust. And there are many reasons our country chose to adopt that, but one of them was that even as we work and exchange currency, we would be reminded that our ultimate trust is not to be in our work or in our money, but in God. Of course, the irony in all of that is quite profound, because what is America known for today? Not really its trust in God, but actually much more its trust in money, its trust in self, and its trust in materialism. That is, the pursuit of material goods and pleasures will be your satisfaction and security. This is quite obvious if one studies American culture for any small amount of time, but what about us? What about us who claim to be Christians? We of all people are those who claim to especially love to follow and to trust God. But does our behavior like the behavior of those in our country, does it betray where our trust really lies? Do we actually trust in idols, false gods, rather than the living God? What does your lifestyle say about your trust? What does it testify? Is it something like, in hard work, I trust? Or, In self, I trust. In science, I trust. Or even in Netflix, I trust. What is it that you look for for protection and provision in your life? 
On what do you rely for wisdom and guidance? How do you seek joy? Where do you find your strength? Where do you turn when troubles arise in your life? Do you turn to God? Or do you turn to some mere thing? Now, brothers and sisters, I know that we are under constant pressure today from our own sin principle that remains with us, and also the culture, and also the evil one. All these pressures wanting us to move our trust away from God and moving it to something in this world, or moving it to man's wisdom, or moving it to our own selves. That's why the text that God has set before us today is so critical for us to hear, to understand, and to apply. Ultimately, what's at stake is God's abundant blessing or God's painful curse. We're going to examine in depth today Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8, you can turn there. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Jeremiah 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, it will be page 772. 772 in the Pew Bible. In Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8, God gives us two vivid pictures of cursing and blessing to warn us, on the one hand, against trusting in mere man, and to encourage us, on the other hand, to trust wholeheartedly in God. This is the main truth, so I'll say it again. In Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8, we get two vivid pictures from God of cursing and blessing to warn us against trusting in mere man and to encourage us to trust wholeheartedly in God. Let's see this text ourselves. Follow along with me as I read these four verses. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord, or that is, thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, and whose trust is Yahweh. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The presentation of God's message in these verses is very straightforward. We have a description and an image of the cursed man and we have a description and an image of the blessed man. This then will form the outline of my sermon, since it is the outline of the passage. But before we even get into the text more specifically, we need to ask, what does it mean to be cursed or blessed, especially by God? Surveying what all the Bible says yields an understanding like the following. To be cursed by Almighty God means to have God working against you, to punish you, to harm you, and ultimately to destroy you. If you are under God's curse, life ultimately will not go well for you. But to be blessed by God is to have that same almighty God working for you, to provide for you, to help you, to give you joy, and ultimately to give you salvation. If you are blessed by God, then ultimately life will go well for you. Now as an aside... Though true Christians cannot be cursed by God, 
because they are in Christ. Jesus Christ has taken away their curse by becoming a curse for them on the cross. Nevertheless, Christians can and do experience pain, even God's opposition, when they turn from God and his way. They receive even serious corrective discipline at times. Let us not forget that in the New Testament, God put to death two professing Christians, Ananias and Sapphira, when they displayed arrogant hypocrisy before God and the church. God also caused a number of Corinthian Christians to become sick and even to die because they approached the Lord's table sinfully and even used the Lord's table as an occasion for sin. So, if you're a Christian, do not say to yourself, oh, God will never discipline me too harshly. After all, I can't be cursed. Actually, God may need to teach you and others around you not to presume on his grace. If you walk into the way of the curse, you will feel it, even as a Christian. And the Bible often repeats and emphasizes this basic truth that those who follow God will be blessed and those who turn from God will be cursed. Reading these verses, you may have been immediately reminded of Psalm 1. Does not Psalm 1 essentially say the same thing as what we read here? Psalm 1 compares the blessed follower of Yahweh to a well-watered tree that experiences prosperity, whereas the wicked man is described as one who will be judged by God and perish suddenly. But actually, the concept of blessing and cursing according to obedience, it's even more central in those beginning books of the Bible, the Torah, the Law of Moses, the first five books, because it's there where God lays out the terms of his special covenant with Israel. Covenant, a contractual relationship. We see this in the book of Exodus, and we see it in the ones that follow. In that covenant, God again and again emphasizes to Israel that they will be overwhelmingly cursed if they do not keep his covenant. But if they will follow God and will abide by the terms of the covenant, they'll be blessed beyond their wildest dreams. And we see what this looks like in lists that appear in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Entire list of promised curses or blessings based on whether the people will have faith in God and, and obey him. Some of the curses include troubles such as military defeat, nationwide famine, removal from their land by exile. Some of the blessings include military victory, abundant wealth, worldwide honor, and God was quite serious about these promised curses and blessings. And as the history of Israel progressed, they experienced both the blessings and the curses, depending on how they responded to God and his covenant. In fact, by the time we reach the days our texts were written, the days of Jeremiah around 600 B.C., the people of Judah, the recipients of this word, they would know all too well about the seriousness of the curses of God. They saw it play out in front of their very eyes. If you remember, after the days of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two. There was a northern kingdom of ten and a half tribes and a southern kingdom of one and a half tribes called the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel, it rapidly descended into sin and idolatry. And in 722 BC, it was destroyed and taken into exile. The kingdom of Israel was obliterated. God's curse came on that kingdom. But Judah too felt the curse because they too were not faithful to Yahweh. 
the Assyrian Empire, which had destroyed the kingdom of Israel, it also attacked and subdued the kingdom of Judah. And when the Assyrian Empire was replaced by the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian Empire also attacked and subdued the kingdom of Judah. They were a subject kingdom to the Babylonian Empire. As a result, the kingdom of Judah in Jeremiah's day it was not as prosperous as it was. It was in submission. It was not fully independent. They were experiencing hardship. Why? Because they were not faithful to God. They were not following after God. In fact, the book of Jeremiah, really, if we just consider the whole thing, it is largely a prophecy and a record of the fulfillment of the prophecy of God's further judgment of the people of Judah. Even in 600 B.C., when God is calling on the people to repent, they weren't doing it. And so he says, the day is coming when I will judge you further. I will remove you from the land, just as I removed your sister Israel, the northern kingdom. But even in the midst of this proclamation <clears throat> and the fulfillment, excuse me, <clears throat> of this proclamation of judgment, God, a little rays of light that shine through. He says, even now, even at this late hour, if you repent, as a nation, I will withhold my judgment. Jeremiah 18, he uses the metaphor of a potter in clay. He says, if a potter spoils his vessel, he can remake it. Same thing with you. As a nation, if you turn back, I can withhold my judgment. And if you turn away, I can bring the judgment and withhold my blessing. Even now, the choice is yours. And then there's another thing. Actually, the very truth displayed in our text even as the judgment descends on the whole nation, God says, for individuals, for individuals who turn to me, I will yet be faithful to them, to bless and protect them, to withhold my curse from them. Thus, these four verses, Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8, they function as a testimony, not just to that generation, but to all the generations that would come afterwards, even our generation, about the way to blessing and the way to cursing both individually and communally. So let's find out about these ways. Let's look at the two pictures of our passage so that we might know how to avoid God's curse and how to obtain God's happy blessing. The first picture we're given, looks like they want to come together. That's fine. First picture we're given in Jeremiah 15, 17, 5 to 6 is this. Behold the cursed man-truster. He's a desert bush. Notice verse 5 begins with the phrase, Thus says Yahweh. Now I keep saying Yahweh, even though your text says the Lord. Uh, what's going on there, Dave? Well, you see the name the Lord. It appears in the small caps probably in your Bibles. This is just the translator's way of indicating the Hebrew word, the special covenant name of God, Yahweh, a reference to the revelation God gave to Moses about his name. I am who I am. Yahweh is a reference to that, roughly translating to he is. By using this name here, God reminds the people of Judah, he reminds us, that he is the God who keeps covenant. He fulfills his word, both to curse and to bless. But what kind of man is cursed by God? Look what comes next in verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. These descriptions, they're all differing ways of describing the same simple idea. The cursed man, he trusts in mankind. He looks to man 
what man is able to theorize or accomplish for that person's hope, deliverance, and strength. The cursed man also makes mere flesh his strength. He relies strictly on the physical and the material, what he can see and easily understand. He looks to himself. He looks to his fellow man. He looks to the resources of the earth to give him what he needs and wants. The cursed man is further described as one who has a heart that turns away from Yahweh. And you see, this is not really a different description. This is just a further explanation of the same concept because no person can rely on God and man at the same time. It's like when a storm arises. We've had a lot of storms here recently, apparently. There's always forecasts of scattered thunderstorms. When a storm comes, a person can't seek refuge in two places at once. He's got to be in one or the other. can't split his body that way. When the cursed man places his trust in flesh, he necessarily removes his trust from God. What does this mean practically? Well, the cursed man either consciously disobeys the commands of God, or he simply ignores them, pays little attention to them, while he pursues his own will according to his own wisdom and his own way. Now, I'm speaking a little bit generally and abstractly, but what, what would this have looked like for the people of Judah? How were they tempted to trust in man, in flesh, and not God? Well, considering their situation, and considering what's written in the book of Jeremiah, we can see some pretty main ways. They're looking at the kingdom of Babylon, this scary superpower that had taken away their independence. And they were tempted to look to tangible resources and relationships to obtain for themselves strength and protection. And this was all according to the wisdom of men and the wisdom that comes from the flesh. They look, or they were tempted to look, to soldiers, to city walls, to accumulations of food and wealth, to alliances with Egypt, or perhaps a coalition of smaller nations to oppose that great superpower, Babylon. Surely if we just acquire the resources, we secure the alliances, we'll be safe. That was a temptation. Another temptation was to rely on religious objects and rituals. I mean, after all, Judah, the southern kingdom, that's where the city of Jerusalem was. And what's in Jerusalem? The glorious temple of Solomon, the place where God himself chose to dwell. The sacrificial system was centered in Jerusalem. Surely then, as long as we have the temple, maintain the temple, maintain all the rituals of the sacrifices, then we'll be safe. God will give us what we need and want. It's all about the rituals. Maybe we don't need to pay attention to the heart or what's going on in our lives. This was another temptation. People of Judah are also tempted to seek satisfaction in sinful and material pursuits. We see in other places in Jeremiah that Judah, in Judah, the rich and the powerful, they oppressed the poor in order to fund materialistic lifestyles. The land was also filled with adultery, fornication, and prostitution, not to mention syncretistic idolatry. The people were indulging in idolatrous revelries to other gods while maintaining at the same time that they served Yahweh. They thought God would not care. I mean, the other gods are not so exclusive. We can serve them alongside other gods. Why should Yahweh be any different? These were very great temptations to Judah, and they yielded to each one of them. Jeremiah is replete with denunciations of these things. But was this wise? Did this secure for them what they really wanted? Not at all. 
It was the utmost folly. Jeremiah 2.13 says, this is God speaking, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. There was no true security. There was no true wisdom. There was no true satisfaction in what they sought. What they had bought into was an illusion. It was idiocy. It was stupidity. I mean, think about it. Does God need soldiers to win battles? Does God need great warriors or captains to secure the victory? Look what he did with Gideon and his small band of 300. They didn't even fight at first, and God had already given them the victory. And does God need city walls to protect a place? Will city walls prevent God from throwing down a place? Of course not. Look at what happened with Jericho. And as for wealth, what can wealth do for you? Can it secure you? Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 says, Wealth has a tendency to sprout wings and disappear suddenly. And the temple was no protection for the people of Judah. God says in Jeremiah 7, he reminds the people who kept saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I thought it was such a lucky charm for them. He says, I've allowed my worship sites to be desecrated in the past. What makes you think I can't do that again? If I have to judge my people, I'm willing to have my temple desecrated. And will religious rituals, even if they're performed according to the letter of the law, will they ever satisfy God if the heart and life are impure? Not in the least. In fact, that kind of worship is an ugly offense to God. It does not secure his favor. It secures his wrath. And as for indulging in materialism, immorality, syncretistic idolatry, had Judah not learned the painful lessons of Solomon? He pursued all these things. He wrote about these things. And what did he testify? That in the end, you don't get what you're looking for. You instead get sorrow, weariness, and judgment. So what about you? What about us? And what do you trust? Do you trust in your money? Supposing that if you get the right job or enough savings that You'll finally have all you want or need. Do you trust in your abilities, whether it's your ability to work hard, to be clever, to talk your way through difficulties? Do you trust in your relationships? Do you believe that having certain friends or family members or connections, that will provide what you need? Do you believe that if you just acquire authority, control, popularity, that you'll be safe? God may give you some of these things, but he can take them away just as easily in a moment. So don't look to the things of the earth. Look to your creator who controls and sustains all things on earth, including you. Do you trust in religious rituals to secure you before God, to satisfy him? Do you think as long as you know the right doctrines and can talk about them competently, that you'll be fine. As long as you go to church, as long as you give, as long as you pray, as long as you take communion, as long as you're baptized, as long as you serve in some ministry, as long as you read the Bible, as long as you teach the Bible, that 
those things will satisfy God? These things, these things are good. They are useful. But if your heart is far from God and you do these things, you are not secure. You do not have God's favor. You are walking like a cursed man, trusting in mere flesh. Do you ultimately trust in pleasure to satisfy you or to comfort you through life's troubles? Instead of looking to God, do you seek satisfaction and ultimate strength and entertainment and substances and parties or various sinful pleasures? Turning to these things, that's according to the wisdom of the world. Actually, it's the wisdom of demons. It comes from below, as James says. Have you accepted that wisdom? Have you imbibed the spirit of the age? Have you decided to listen to the flesh? You know, there are so many popular ideas that are so contrary to what God says. Things like, customer is always right. You need to be ruthless, self-assertive. That way you'll get what you deserve. Above all else, be true to yourself because otherwise that's inauthentic. And inauthenticity is the greatest sin. Therefore, whatever desires and feelings you have, that's the true you. Have we even fallen into the deception of scientism? Believing that today's scientific and psychological experts, so-called, they can give the true answers to life's questions, even when their answers contradict or force a reinterpretation of the Bible, like when it comes to the origin of the earth, or when it comes to how you parent your children, or how you deal with issues of the inner man. Psychologists call this the psyche. The Bible doesn't use that term. It calls it the inner man. Have you given way to pragmatism, an experience-based approach to life? That if it works, it must be right, but if it's uncomfortable or painful and doesn't produce the results I'm looking for right away, it can't be right. Do you find yourself responding to exhortations or explanations of the commands and principles of God's word by saying, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but... Do you find creative ways to explain away the scriptures, to silence your conscience, and to excuse your behavior? If you do, if you have, you need to realize you're making the same mistake as the people of Judah. Let's not make that same mistake. The objects of Judah's trust were empty. They did not bring any real power or benefit. And so are the fleshly objects that we are tempted to trust today promoted according to the world's wisdom. Even worse, trusting in these things, we're told, not only will it not benefit us, but it will bring us under God's curse. And what does that look like? Verse 6 is going to elaborate for us. Look at verse 6 now with me. It says, For he, that's the cursed man, he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt, without inhabitant. God's image of the cursed man is one of lifelessness, deprivation, and ultimate destruction. Now, living in arid Southern California, Em and I have gotten a little more familiar with desert bushes. You can see these dry little shrubs as you pass by them on the highway. 
and not exactly pictures of life and vitality. Especially as hot summer days descend on Los Angeles, these desert shrubs shrivel up, get brown, get more and more fragile looking until it seems like surely they will just disintegrate and blow away, become a tumbleweed. God says, such is the man who is cursed. He becomes a dry desert bush. Actually, the image is even more depressing because we hear in in the next line, and he will not see when prosperity comes. Desert bushes are often able to survive because eventually water does come. Yes, even in the desert, even in the deserts of Southern California, water does come. Prosperity eventually returns, and the dried-up desert bushes, they become revitalized in the winter rains. God says that's not the way it is for the cursed man. When prosperity comes, he doesn't see it. God says, I will make sure that this cursed desert bush will never see life-giving rain. Though it may hang on for a while, it may look pretty good, it may seem to be really flourishing, but the land will remain parched. The cursed man will be like a forlorn shrub in a stony waste in the wilderness. Think of the most barren landscape you can. That's where you're going to find the cursed man, God says. Such a place is also described as a land of salt. And salty soil, it prevents most plants from growing. It's kind of poisonous to plants. In the, in the Bible and in ancient times, conquerors would sometimes sow a land with salt so that the people, when they're trying to rebuild and plant farms again, they can't because things won't grow. God says the cursed man has been placed by God in the middle of a salt waste, one without inhabitant. It's a place devoid of life. That's where God places the cursed man to wither. Are you getting the picture? It's very bleak. So what's the main point? God says this is the kind of life for a man who does not trust in Yahweh, but instead looks to himself, to men, to the wisdom of the world, and to the things of the world to be his strength. Of course, trusting the flesh Sometimes looks like it will lead you to joy and prosperity. It looks like the wise course. It looks like the secure course. It's popular. Everybody's saying, look, it works. I love it. It's so good. You should try it. But listen to Yahweh. Listen to the covenant-keeping God who does not lie. People lie. People misinterpret, but God doesn't. He's given us his perfect word that we can trust. This is the true picture of the one who forsakes Yahweh and follows the flesh. It is barrenness in this life, and it is eternal destruction in the next. Now, you Christians, my brothers and sisters, have you put yourself in the way of cursing, forcing God to oppose you and correct you because he's a good father? And for those of you who are not Christians, how long will you remain in the barren desert, clinging to life as a desert bush? Especially when such an alternative, such a blessed alternative is available to you. What is that alternative? That's what God describes next in the text. It's the flip side. We've seen who the cursed man is, but who is the blessed man? And what does his blessing look like? We see the second picture now in verses 7 to 8. The second picture, 
We beheld the cursed man truster. He's a desert bush. But now we behold the blessed God truster. He's a well-watered tree. Look at verse 7. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose trust is Yahweh. Now, these two statements in our English translations, they sound like they're identical, but they actually form what's called a chiasm, a small chiasm in Hebrew. What's a chiasm? It's a literary structure of inversion that emphasizes a central idea. They say, uh, what's that mean? Let me illustrate. A more literal translation of verse 7 would be something like this. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and for whom Yahweh is his trust. You see the little inversion there? Trust, Yahweh, Yahweh, trust. What's the point? Well, chiasms are often about emphasizing the central idea. The blessed man is the one who thoroughly trusts in his covenant God. Yahweh is his center. Yahweh is his strength and confidence. This man, while he makes use of the resources and relationships that he has in the world, which as a good steward of God he is called to do, he nevertheless does not look to these things for his ultimate protection, his ultimate joy, or for his wisdom, he looks to God. Which means he looks to God's word. This man, the blessed man, knows and believes Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know who else quoted that? Jesus Christ when he was tempted. The blessed man has also learned to say, along with the psalmist in 16, Psalm 16.5 and 16.11, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. The blessed man recognizes that. He believes in his covenant-keeping God, and he demonstrates that belief by obedience to God's word. He trusts God through the dangers and trials, and he does not resort to sin to escape his trials or to find comfort through them. This man waits upon the Lord in all his life. What would this have looked like in Jeremiah's day? Well, surely a blessed man in Jeremiah's day who made Yahweh his trust, he would have certain observable features. And one is a devotion to Yahweh's word. He would pay careful attention to it. He would read it when he could. He would listen to it. He would memorize it. He would sing it. He would, above all, be careful to believe and obey it. This man would also have been devoted to prayer, praying daily, not simply reciting a formula at different times, but committed to focused time of worship and communion with the God of heaven. This man also surely would have eschewed the wisdom of the world when it came to his work and his family life. He would not have misrepresented his skills or his goods in order to make a profit. He would not cheat his employees. He would not cheat his customers. But he would provide generously for his workers. He would be generous to give to others, to those in need, and to the temple service at the time. This would be unthinkable according to worldly wisdom. You've got to keep your wealth. You've got to use it to get more wealth. This man, he would have practiced the golden rule rather than the wisdom of the age. He would not have been committed to self-love, self-worth, self-assertion. Now he would trust that God to take care of him. He also would not have sought to harshly teach people lessons when they failed or they sinned. But instead, he would look to show them love 
and undeserved favor and gentleness even as he corrects them. This man would have found his highest joys in knowing and seeking Yahweh exclusively, not along with other gods. He found joy in obeying Yahweh, fellowshipping with Yahweh, and with Yahweh's people. And also giving public praise and testimony of Yahweh and Yahweh's faithfulness. These are things that are described in the Psalms. And if this was true in the days of the psalmists and in Jeremiah's day, if that's what a blessed man would look like, what about today? Isn't it the same? So what about you? Is your life marked by devotion to Yahweh and his word? Is it marked by trusting in Yahweh's wisdom over the wisdom of the world? Is it marked by a delight in walking to Yahweh's way rather than the way of sinners? God declares that this is the person who will be blessed. You want to be blessed? Don't we all want to be blessed? He says, this is the way. God's favor for good will be on this man. And what does that look like? God gives us a picture in verse 8. Look at that with me. He says, For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. It will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Isn't this the exact opposite picture of the cursed man? The cursed man, he's a bush placed in a dry desert to wither, but the blessed man is a tree planted by water. Mind you, this is not merely a tree planted in a land that that sees a decent amount of rain. No, this is a tree right next to a continual water source. It says its roots are extending by the stream. It has an abundant, ceaseless supply of life-giving water. Notice, though, this tree does see troubles. It sees difficult days. It says the tree passes through seasons of heat and years of drought. And those are hard, right? I mean, we're not trees, but we have difficulty in the heat and in droughts, right? It's above 80 degrees, and I don't even want to go outside. I feel like I can't even move. It's true in Southern California. How much more here where the humidity just wraps you like a blanket? The blessed man, too. He sees hard days, even whole seasons and years of difficulty. But notice what the text says. The text says that this tree will not fear when the heat comes, and it won't be anxious in years of drought. What? How can that be? I mean, these are normally desperate times for plants, even trees. But the answer is obvious. Why doesn't the tree fear or be anxious? Because it's connected to a secure water source. No matter the heat, no matter the drought, the tree will still soak up its abundant water supply. So not only will the tree survive, but it will thrive. Notice it says, talking about these difficult days, its leaves will be green. Not brown, not shriveled, green, vibrant. This tree is looking lush in the middle of a heat wave. How is the tree fair in the middle of a drought? It says it does not cease to bear fruit. It's bearing fruit in the middle of a drought. What tree does that? This tree prospers even in difficult circumstances. 
God says, such is the man that he blesses. God is that man's abundant supply of life, of strength, of wisdom, and joy. God will continue to provide for that man in all his troubles. That man then has no true cause for worry or fear because he has Yahweh. He has the sovereign God. It's just like God said in Jeremiah 2.13. He is the fountain of living waters. So if your root is placed in that fountain, you will never lack. And doesn't this remind you of Jesus' own words in the New Testament? God incarnate said in John 4.14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Jesus also says in Revelation 21.6, as he speaks to the Apostle John in great glory, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts for the spring of the water of life without cost. Open invitation. Full generosity offered. So if you want true security, if you want true satisfaction, if you want true life, know that you will only find it in God. That's the way God designed you as his creator. You know, that's something I think we often forget when we start listening to sin and the flesh and worldly wisdom. We're not designed to go that way. What happens when you use something against its design? You usually hurt yourself. You damage it. God designed you to rely on him. That's the way to blessing then. If you seek it any other way, you'll end up like the bone-dry shrub in the desert, trying to suck water from broken cisterns. That's just the way it's going to be. You won't be an exception. God doesn't lie. Now, practically, what does this blessing that comes from Yahweh look like? In the days of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, many of these blessings from God were explicitly material as part of the Mosaic Covenant. We reviewed some of these things. Things like victory in battle, no miscarrying, economic prosperity, the healing of diseases. God promised these material blessings to his people if they would follow him in those days. But those weren't the only blessings. Certainly there was actually even greater blessings beyond those. Faithful Jews, they got to experience confidence in the future. Assurance of God's protection and provision. Joy in fellowship with God. And the joy of obedience to God. What about the church? What about us today? Well, we've not been given the same material promises as the people of Israel and Judah were, at least for this age. We will experience that amazing, prosperous blessing in the age to come when Jesus establishes a kingdom on the earth, a kingdom that will be of both Jew and Gentile for those who follow God. And we taste of that kingdom now. But in this age, we aren't promised abundant material blessing, though some do, experience it, even as believers. But what are we promised? We're promised perfect and generous provision. As Jesus explains in Matthew 6, 31. Matthew 6, 31 and 33, Jesus says, Do not worry then saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. They're running after them because what do they serve? The flesh. They trust in mere man. Jesus continues, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So we have a generous provision promised for our lives. But even without that, and even with the persecutions and the troubles that will come to us in this life as followers of Christ, those are promised to us, we also still have the most important and most or, and greatest blessing, the same that the godly ones in Israel had. They had God. They had the source of the water of life. And if you have that, then what need do you have of anything else? Ultimately, God is our life. Knowing him and walking with him, that is our strength and our joy. This is Paul says, to live is Christ. And we know that we have everlasting life with him, so let God do as he wills with our material circumstances. We know he'll take care of us. We've already got the most important thing. We've got him. And many Christians can testify of these very things, even you. Has God not been so gracious to you in your life? Has he not provided exactly as you needed and exactly the right time? Oh, I know. Many of you have gone and are going through some really hard things. But God, just as he testifies in this passage, even in the heat and the drought, he is that source of abundant water. Many Christians in history have testified of that. And many of us can today as well. It's because this word is true. Like the blessed man in this text, we Christians, those who truly know God, we will ultimately flourish as green trees and bear fruit even in the midst of difficulty. Aren't these truths so simple and yet so glorious and good and how often yet we still don't cling to them? We still don't grab hold of them? We still don't believe them? That's why we need this text. God has given us two very clear pictures today of blessing and cursing so we might no longer trust in mere flesh but might be encouraged to trust wholeheartedly in our Yahweh God. We behold on the one hand the cursed man truster. He's a desert bush. He's a decrepit shrub in the wilderness. On the other hand, we behold the blessed man, a well-watered tree, a lush tree in the middle of heat. Which of these pictures best describes your life right now? Have you had your root placed in the living waters by faith in Jesus Christ so that you are able to rejoice in the Lord no matter your circumstances? Even as you experience sorrow and trouble, you say, I am still secure. I'm still rooted to the water source. Or are you still that dry shrub shaking in the desert wind, hoping vainly that ultimate security and satisfaction will come, maybe, one day. As we close, and as a final illustration, consider briefly the two testimonies of King Saul and King David. King Saul was a man who experienced blessing. He was chosen by God to be the first king of Israel, an immense honor and privilege. And God charged Saul to seek God, and he promised that if he would, he would be blessed, and his dynasty would have the throne forever. God was with Saul. God gave Saul military victory. He established his rule over Israel. But then Saul 
began to turn away from God. He began to trust in mankind, trust in flesh instead of his covenant God. Like many pagan kings, Saul began to believe that he was dependent upon the favor of the people, of his subjects, and he feared disappointing them. He feared crossing them. He feared losing their support. So when the enemy began to bear down on Saul and Israel in 1 Samuel 13, and the people began deserting Saul, and Samuel had still not arrived to offer the sacrifices, which Samuel said he would do and that Saul should wait for him, Saul chose to disobey. He chose to forsake Yahweh, and he offered the sacrifice himself. Even worse, in 1 Samuel 15, when God commanded Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, and to destroy all their goods, because this was going to be a special act of judgment from God. Saul disobeyed. He destroyed most of the Amalekites and most of their stuff, but he kept the best goods for the people of Israel. And he kept alive the king of the Amalekites, Agag, as a trophy of the victory. Samuel confronted Saul over this. He said, you disobeyed God. And Saul said, no, I didn't. No, 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 I got a reason. But when pressed, Saul admitted, you're right. I sinned because I feared the people. The sad thing is, even when confronted, even when he admitted it, he did not turn from that fear. Saul continued to forsake Yahweh. And so what was the result on Saul? It was a curse. He felt God's curse. God took away the kingdom from Saul. God took away Saul's joy. God took away Saul's confidence. God sent a tormenting spirit to afflict Saul, he who had once experienced great blessing. And yet with all these things, he did not turn back to God. Even when Saul, or even when God brought David into Saul's life, and David was an immense blessing to Saul, or at least he should have been, he would play and the tormenting spirit would leave Saul. He would lead Saul's armies to great victory. He was an extremely loyal servant. Even when Saul tried to kill him, he would not rebel against Saul. But Saul didn't love David. He feared David because David might take the favor of the people. That's what Saul feared most of all. Because if I lose the favor of the people, uh, lose the favor of the people, I will lose the kingship. And that's the most important thing. It's very sad and tragically ironic that because Saul so desperately wanted the security, satisfaction, honor outside of God, he lost all of those things. The kingship, which he held as his greatest treasure, and the, the favor of the people, which would give him that kingship, those are the very things that he lost. And even worse, he imperiled his own eternal soul. You know, it's interesting. I'm not sure if Saul's in heaven. Maybe he is. There are some people who have sinned some great ways and yet are still counted among the faithful in Scripture. But there's never a sign of repentance in Saul when he pursued his path of sin. He never showed the fruit of repentance. And wouldn't that be the saddest thing? If he clung to the kingship and he lost the eternal kingdom, what a contrast, what a tragic contrast between Saul and David. King David came after Saul. He wasn't perfect. He experienced some painful consequences for his sin, but as a whole, he followed Yahweh. And what was the result? Blessing, joy, strength. 
David testifies about it again and again in the Psalms. He says, I love the Lord. I love his law. I delight to follow Yahweh. God, make me more like yourself. David was a blessed man. And he testified of how wonderful that blessing was. Saul was a cursed man. And we can see how terrible that curse was. So what do you want? Which will you choose? When you're faced with the choice of following Yahweh or following the wisdom of the world, the inclination of your flesh, which will you choose? Do you want blessing or do you want cursing? Are you willing by faith to trust God and experience his abundant blessing? It will come, oh, it may be hard for a while, but he will sustain you through it and it will come. But are you not willing to trust? Will you stubbornly refuse to trust God to your own hurt, to your own eternal peril? You know, our country's motto is really a sham. It's not accurate to say that America trusts God. But it should be accurate for us. May we, as the people of God, as men, women, and children who are found in Christ, let us be able to testify, in God we trust. Because God will vindicate that trust. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your supreme word. It instructs us. It comforts us. It shows us the way. Lord, what we've discussed today is so basic, and yet we seem so like stubborn animals, not able to yield to it. So we need your help. God, help us to trust you, to believe your word, to believe that your way is always the way to blessing, even if there is some hardship for a time. Help us not believe the false wisdom of the world and the false wisdom of the flesh, not to trust in man. In Jesus' name, amen.